Whether you're looking to invest in early stage, typically unavailable opportunities, or a company in need of marketing and financial support, Zim2 Capital is here to help. Let's talk about it. Contact us today by visiting Zim2.com. Zim2 Capital, connecting opportunity and you. from Switzerland and welcome everybody to today's session on rare earth elements and yeah we are very happy to have Chris Berry here with us today he is uh, yeah he's very well known expert on rare earths uh, big news outlets like Bloomberg or Financial Times they they usually they call him up when there's some major news about the space or the market and they ask him about his opinion so and today he is with us so we have the chance to ask him some questions so I hope everybody has some good questions for him and that's your chance here today. So if you have any, if any of my German friends, wenn meine deutschen Freunde irgendeine Frage haben, dann können die das auch gerne per Chat machen oder einfach mir die Frage auf Deutsch stellen, dann übersetze ich diese gerne auf Englisch. So yeah, before we start, I just want to really um, show you some uh, slides here first, just to make a short introduction on Rare Earths before we give the microphone to Chris. Um, let me just share my screen. Here we go. So here you can see in uh, a chart comparing some uh, rare earth companies. And also we have the FunEck uh, rare earths uh, ETF here in green. And you can see since Christmas of 2019, uh, the rare earth space, many companies, they have been moving up. But really from November of last year in 2020, that's when the things really got uh, uh, starting here. Uh, we can see many companies are booming. The share prices, they increased very much. We can see here in, uh, in purple, that's uh, MP Materials, uh, the former Molycorp with the Mountain Pass mine in California. They are leading this group here. They are up 217%. And they have been up all the way, almost 380%. Uh, Linus, they also have a market cap of around four to five billion uh, US dollars, I believe. They are up 205%. Energy Fuels, also a US company. Uh, with a market cap, I believe, of 700 million, they're up uh, 184%. We also have uh, Commerce Resources here in blue. That's where you see the wild swings in the beginning. It's because their market cap is around 30 million, so they move uh, up much uh, stronger. But also on the downside, they tend to move, of course, a little bit steeper. Yes, also new performance. They also have a market cap of around uh, 700 million dollars. They're up 83%. And yeah, so I'm really curious to hear also from Chris, uh, what was really the reason why in November everything started to take off? Uh, I know that the prices for a lot of uh, rare earth metals, they have been also going up uh, since that time. So it's not really uh, a surprise that these share prices are going up, but I believe we are in a new bull market for rare earths. And I'm really curious also to see what uh, Chris has to say. So two weeks ago, I published a report on uh, commerce resources and also on the uh, rare earths market. So take a look at this and you will probably quickly find out that I'm a big fan of commerce and since many years. And I believe they are now really ready to make a, a difference. They raised some $5 million a couple of months ago. And I, I believe today they announced another $2 million raise. So obviously, investors' demand is very strong these days. So with... $7 million in the bank. I'm really looking forward to Chris' presentation later on to find out how he plans to spend all that money to get really this project in Quebec to the next level. 
Uh, Tormont Group from also from Canada, they published also a research report on commerce resources uh, uh, two weeks ago, and they also took a dive into the into the market. Uh, also, very interesting comments they had about the market here, and it's available also on the website, but also when you contact Chris. So yeah, uh, you've probably heard it many times in the media everywhere. The green wave is among us. Everything is going green now if you like it or not, but yeah, I bet you like making money. And I believe that the green wave is a big, big opportunity for investors to make a lot of money over the next years. It's a huge new mega trend that in my opinion is just about getting started. So yeah, green wave, it's all about electric vehicles, uh, renewable energy and also energy storage and clean tech is on the rise and the new economic uh, mega trend is happening around the globe. So yeah, and while the media is of course full of articles on all the metals that are needed to make the green wave a success, like copper, nickel, lithium, cobalt, graphite, there's also a group of 16 or 17 uh, metals that are called rare earth elements or short REEs. Uh, actually, they're not rare at all, but it's more very rare or very difficult for humans to successfully uh, separate them from each other because they normally they all come together in the rock, all these 17 uh, elements. And uh, yeah, you can find them in all kinds of rocks, even in, a, on, on, in your uh, granite tabletop, there are rare earth elements. So the name rare earth is a little bit uh, uh, confusing for sure, but it's really difficult to separate them. Okay, anyways, here is uh, here we can see that uh, REEs, they have all kinds of important applications in the industry. Here we can see smartphones, for example, an iPhone, it contains eight different rare earths, while other smartphones, they use uh, 16 of those 17 REEs. We also have, of course, the electric vehicles, for example, the electric Toyota Prius, it uses 25 kilograms of rare earths, compare that to only one kilogram in a normal combustion engine vehicle. Yeah, and the UBS Investment Bank, they predicted recently that the electric vehicle penetration will increase from around 4% today, that's about 3 million electric vehicles per year, to about 50% by 2030. That's 46 million electric vehicles per year. So, and during this time, until 2030, the UBS, they expect that the global demand for REEs, they are going to triple from the current demand levels. And here we can see a chart from UBS, which shows a lot of commodities which are necessary for electric vehicles. So if we go 100% electric vehicles, then we need a lot of lithium, cobalt, we all know that. But on, on, on ranking number three is rare earths. And you can see 655%, uh, the demand is going to increase. That's seven and a half times of what we have right now. So a lot of new supply is needed. And that's really the crucial problem of rare earths is that the supply is really controlled by China and uh, there is not much supply around in the Western world. Here you can see how really the EV penetration is going to uh, go into the world uh, over the next years and how steep it's expected to be. Here we can see the demand. The, uh, the demand from electric vehicles. So it's really going to take off. But it's not only electric vehicles which are important but also other industry, other, other products, they require a lot of uh, rare earths, like this uh, here, this uh, ship, it's a military ship. It requires 2,300 uh, kilograms of rare earth. So that's 2.3 2 tons of these metals, that's a lot. 
but we also have like other military, uh, like this uh, lightning aircraft, it requires 400 kilograms of rare earths, but we also have uh, this uh, SSN-774 Virginia class submarine, it uses more than 4,000 kilograms of uh, uh, rare earths, you can see a lot of uh, uh, technique is here, a lot of technology, so it uses a lot of these metals. Also, wind turbines, they require about 150 kilograms of rare earths per megawatt. So if the world is going to increase the wind turbines, then a lot of new uh, demand for that will be, of course, created. So yeah, rare earths, are, they are really important for the national and economic uh, security for a lot of uh, countries. That's because, as I mentioned, 80% about global supply is controlled by China. Uh, it used to be much more than 80%, but uh, Linus and also MP materials, they are ramping up production. And uh, yeah, they're they are, they are getting into the market. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, what Chris has to say about all, all this. What's his take on the rare space these days? And if he thinks that we are back into a new and long-term bull market in this uh, very interesting space. So I believe you're uh, uh, muted. Hey, yeah, so is it? I guess this is my cue, huh? Um, well, uh, thank you, Stefan, for that. I, it's great. I mean, a lot of what you have just sort of gone through, I think, really dovetails nicely with um, some of the points or messages that I'd like to leave the audience with today. Um, and, you know, before I really jump into some of those points, again, do want to say thank you to Zimtu uh, for not just the opportunity today to come and share some ideas and, and thoughts and hopefully challenge um, some of your beliefs, because I am, just to cut right to the chase, I am quite bullish on uh, this thematic, whether or not you want to call it electrification or what have you, but uh, out over the next 10 years. And so I do give Zimtu actually a lot of credit for, um, you know, leading, leading the charge through thick and thin and including me on those uh, bus trips, despite the fact that, yes, Dave, you're right, they do blend together. And there's a lot that I don't recall um, from, <laughs> from those bus trips, which is probably another story for another day. But nevertheless, uh, let me go ahead and just share my screen uh, and jump in here. Okay, here we go. So uh, one of the things that I, can you guys see all that? Okay, good. Um, one of the things that I've tried to do in 2021 is not use PowerPoint. And so this is my attempt at talking more from like a bullet point perspective. But um, I think we, you know, just in terms of a general framework about where we are with rare earths and critical metals, I look at the global economy and some of the points we'll get into here in a minute, I look at today right now as what I call the cell phone moment, okay? And um, I sort of came to this by going back through, you know, taking a trip down memory lane of my own memory. And in 1987, when this actual, um, what, what you're looking at here is a picture from the movie American Psycho, which is about an investment banker um, in the mid eighties. And so I think I thought it was an appropriate picture because back in 1987, this was cutting edge technology, okay? Uh, and of course, between 1987 and 2007, we saw this technology get more and more powerful and become more and more accessible. Okay. And of course, in 2007, the iPhone was introduced and we're off and running. And so when I think about, you know, personally, 1987 as the tipping point for personal communications, I think that today, 2021 is the cell phone moment, if you will, for electrification and for the uh, use of the battery and the use of magnets in particular with respect to transportation. And so those are some of the, the points I'd like to lay out today. I do think that, you know, going forward, I think the next 10 years is going to be characterized by what I like to call the paradox of green growth. 
Okay. I really agree with all of Stefan's points and his take. I mean, I think uh, nobody that I know, no matter how skeptical you are of green tech, nobody that I know doubts that demand for rare earth elements, in particular, the magnet uh, feed is going to grow. Okay. And it's going to go strongly, strongly. And you're looking at this interesting situation where we all want technology. We all want a higher quality of life. But the problem is it's not going to take less rare earth elements. In other words, my personal bet is that the typical magnet in 2030 won't necessarily use less of a given rare earth element, that the percentages and the weights might be slightly different, but overall, we're going to be using a lot more rare earth elements to electrify the global economy. And so that's the paradox. How do we bring more supply on stream while still managing a number of these bullet points that I'd like to just run through over the next few minutes? And so the first, as you can see here, is geopolitics. Um, last year, right as COVID really hit New York, um, my family and I moved to Washington, D.C. It was more a quality of life move. But nevertheless, you know, it's been a really interesting time to be in D.C., given the fact that, as you can see here, the line between economic and national security, in my view, has permanently been blurred. Um, the typical Chinese strategy, I think, is to combine both economic and national security. And what I see happening, whether or not it's here in North America or in Europe in particular, with stimulus and, and a lot of the focus on critical elements, is this Chinese strategy of this blurring of national and economic security becoming the norm over here. It's interesting that I think the only thing you can get people to agree to on here in Washington, D.C. is that China is the bad guy, okay? Their strategy of sort of top-down investment, economics are secondary, the environment is secondary, just own the means of production at all costs, um, has rubbed a lot of people the wrong way and certainly hollowed out the manufacturing base here in the West. And that's something that I think is clearly going to change. And that leads into my second point, which is this focus on supply chains. Um, Again, about a year ago, this was this topic of supply chain and supply chain resilience and, and um, independence from China, I think, became very, very popular. And it still is today. Uh, my view is that despite the fact that it's probably going to be inflationary, meaning more expensive for typical producers of the supply chain overall to run business and not touch China, it's something that is going to happen. Um, I don't know about the whole deglobalization thematic and how realistic that is, but I certainly think that within the next five to 10 years, you could see a regionalized supply chain structure, whether or not it's with critical materials or PPE or, or other things like that, medical equipment, that really avoids China to, to every extent possible. I think there's enough capital flowing around in the system, something we'll talk about in a minute, but also just the, the sentiment, the realization that this is something we can actually do. And so, again, how that happens is really the $64,000 question. Um, my view is that it's you know, going to be public and private partnerships. So the government is going to play an increased role in the build out of these supply chains, whether or not it's focusing on rare earth elements or what have you. Um, you know, the EU Green New Deal is a perfect example of something that, you know, I think needs to be worked out a little bit more in terms of how all of this money, this public money is going to be spent. But we're talking about spending a trillion euros on their own domestic supply chains around critical materials in the next 10 years. I mean, that's unprecedented and it's incredible. And I'm in just interested to see how and where that money gets dispersed. The same thing with Biden, uh, President Biden and his plans on infrastructure here. I mean, he's talked very openly about um, 174 billion US dollars focused on the electric vehicle supply chain. Again, that's an outrageously um, large amount of money, for lack of a better phrase, but how it gets passed through Congress and then and then spent is another question. You know, Department of Defense grants, things like that we've seen with Linus and of course, energy fuels and neomaterials, lots going on there. So supply chains are going to change. And I think that they're, they're going to change because of these geopolitical tensions that I really don't see abating anytime soon. 
And then just, you know, the last two, one of the interesting sort of, um, I don't want to call it curveballs, but maybe additions here to supply chains is that it's not enough to bring new upstream capacity on. Um, it's not enough to build magnet recycling. All of this has to be done with ESG goals in mind. Okay. And that is because literally every economy, every country on the planet is now focused on not just the decarbonization angle, but also supply chain transparency. I mean, many of us on the call are familiar with cobalt and what does or does not go on in the DRC in terms of bringing it to market. Um, and my personal view is that, again, coming back to this paradox of green growth or this tension around what we want and what we're willing to do to bring it to market, um, it's going to be a situation where the supply chain transparency is going to be, I think, ultimately going to win out. In other words, having eyeballs on how the material is mined and produced in Canada or in, in the United States or in, in Western Europe is going to outweigh the potential low cost of outsourcing a lot of that, which has been the traditional model, okay? Now, it could mean cost inflation for domestic producers, whether or not it's rare earths or what have you, but ultimately, ideally, domestic producers of these raw materials could pass at that um, pass that cost inflation onto their customers. The implication there is, of course, higher pricing, which works well on the equity side as well, okay? And then just to follow up or maybe finish up, and then I'm happy to you know take any questions or perhaps hear what some of the companies have to say. You know, I think that the macro economy um, has emerged from COVID or is in the process, maybe we're not out of the woods yet, uh, but it's emerged much stronger than I think a lot of people would have guessed a year ago. Um, when you look around globally for all the hand-wringing and, and talk of inflation relative to deflation in the economy, I think interest rates in terms of the cost of money, the cost of borrow are still very, very low, okay? And capital, I would argue, is still plentiful and cheap um, many of you on the call may or may not be familiar with what a SPAC is. That's a special purpose acquisition company that is essentially one method of capital raising and going to the public markets to bring, bring new deals to market. Um, I call it a boom and I have a bust in parentheses because last year, actually in 2020, uh, about 80 billion US dollars was raised in these SPAC deals. Okay. And just to put that in perspective, uh, today, year to date, here we are, what is it, April 21st, about $93 billion has been raid, raised for SPAC type of deals. I think the most notable SPAC deal that many of us would be familiar with um, of late is MP Materials. And they're one of the only, um, I guess, upstream recipients of, of SPAC capital. But look, there's a lot there's a lot of money out there sloshing around in the system looking for a home. And my central argument is, as we're looking to build out these supply chains, it's one method for these companies to tap the public markets. Of course, COVID era stimulus, I sort of, I, I referred to this earlier around supply chain development. I mean, there's just an unprecedented amount of stimulus in Western Europe, in the United States, in Canada, all over the world, looking for a home. And my view is what better home than building out our own domestic supply chains to increase our own self-reliance. And then finally, again, you know, the question that I get on a lot of these calls is, from a macro perspective, you know, what, what's winning or where do we go in the future? Is it inflation or deflation? And, and I have been pretty publicly, I don't want to say I'm in favor of deflation, but I think it's still the predominant force out over the next 10 years. Um, when you look at demographics globally, when you look at how technology proliferates, again, that cell phone example is, is only one of a number of different examples. I just think that cost deflation and leveraging technology is, is going to win out out over the next 10 years. And so you know, again, the speed of technological diffusion, I think, is going to be um, one of the major, major themes to keep in mind, whether or not you're building a junior mining company or you're investing in it. Um, those companies that I think have world-class assets, world-class teams, and can also leverage a lot of the technologies out there, whether or not it's 
um, producing rare earth elements with, with ESG sort of friendly uh, processes in mind, I do think that those are the companies that are going to be well-placed and uh, are going to be pretty, pretty um, fortunate, maybe recipients of capital going forward. So again, this is just a little bit, um, not, not off the cuff, but I think that these are the themes and the ideas that are really going to drive the critical metals supply chain over the next 10 years uh, in North America. But in particular, I think the rare earth supply chain as well. Um, you know, I'll let, I know Chris Grove is, he's probably forgotten more about rare earths than many of us will ever know. So, you know, Chris, I'm sure I'm interested to hear what you have to say with respect to China and commerce when it's your opportunity. But, um, you know, China is still the big question mark, I think, geopolitically right now. Um, are they are they importing rare earth elements? Yes or no? To what extent? I mean, a lot of this information is starting to come to light. And again, it just makes the case for, in my view, a domestic or regionalized supply chain. And it doesn't, we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of tons a year, right? Starting small and then scaling with the market, I think is the way to do it. But again, just a few thoughts. Um, again, happy to take questions today or, or in the future. But again, thank you all for you know, your time and attention. It's actually great. It's actually great to see so many people uh, logged into this. This is this is fantastic. And I also think it's sort of indicative of how much interest is in the space. I'm certainly seeing a lot of it here in, in DC. So with that, I will step aside. And again, thanks for all of your time and attention. So <clears throat> I'll just uh, ask uh, Colton to explain uh, uh, the procedure. If you have questions, uh, what you need to do. Yeah, super simple. Uh, you can either just unmute yourself, I'll allow for that, or you can also just Type right in the chat button down in the middle of the screen if you have any questions for either Stefan, Chris, or, or Zintu, or any of the companies that are going to be presenting in a little bit here. So next, uh, um, introduce uh, the president of uh, Seville Resources, Mike Hodge. Um, and, uh, well, I'll let you tell the story, Mike. Hi, everyone. My name is Mike Hodge. I'm the president and CEO of Seville Resources. Uh, we're going to go over, it, it's not uh, directly rare earth elements, uh, but uh, it is found with rare earth elements and is a rare metal. It's also strategic to uh, this green wave. Uh, the, uh, sorry, screen first. Yeah, I can't see. Yeah, I can get right there. Yeah, and then, yeah. So the uh, picture on the front of our presentation here, that's the Mio Viaduct. Uh, this could not have been built without the use of niobium. Uh, so one of the uses for niobium is uh, it's a steel alloy that makes it stronger and lighter. Uh, Seville has 80 million shares out with a market cap of uh, $4 million. Why niobium is important? It's going to be extremely important for electric vehicles. Uh, it, it again, making things lighter and stronger so that the electric car can go farther um, on one charge. Uh, there's an application uh, for batteries in the lithium ion battery. Um, niobium is making it safer uh, and a faster charging battery. CBMM and Toshiba have a battery that they're working on, um, and I'll go over that a little bit later. Uh, within the construction industry, just like that bridge and all of these buildings that are getting built for seismic applications, they all need niobium. It allows them to use less steel for a stronger product. 
this slide came from uh, CBMM, and it goes over uh, some of the uh, barriers that a lithium-ion battery has, and some of the great benefits that niobium brings to it. So one of the major issues with a lithium-ion battery is uh, it has a tendency to uh, short-circuit itself with uh, the lithium forming metal. Uh, niobium prevents this. Um, it also increases the range. And uh, they have been doing tests on this battery. So after a six minute charge, you, you can get up to, uh, it's over 300 kilometers. Whereas a conventional lithium ion battery, you're in around 90 kilometers. Uh, that is one of the major problems that uh, the general consumer is complaining about against a uh, internal combustion engine. Uh, CBMM recently put out uh, a forecast for what they believe niobium oxide is uh, the increase in demand for it. Uh, so in 2021, uh, they think it's about uh, 100 tons. By uh, 2030, they're up to 45,000 tons. With niobium, I believe its price is around $45 a kilo right now. That is a tremendously huge opportunity for anyone in the niobium space. <laughs> Chris, it, it did say explode for a reason. <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit about the property. Uh, so, Seville's property is in a great jurisdiction. It's northern Quebec. Uh, and Congress and I are going to have a drill program this summer. Here are Seville's claims. Uh, the larger claim group are the Commerce claims which hold their Ashman deposit, which is held right in here. And these yellow claims are Seville's claims. So typically with a uh, carbonatite, you quite often will get a center uh, rare earth zone like we have here. So this green is Congress's Ashman deposit. You can see all the drill holes in here. Um, and then this outline is Seville's claims. And this orange is where the projected niobium is. So there's a number of extremely positive targets. Uh, when Alex Knox uh, was writing our 43101, um, he, he's an expert on carbonatites. He stated he has never worked on a uh, niobium claim group with so many excellent targets. He, he thinks we have about 20 targets that we could uh, sink a drill into. The two main ones are Mallard, which is where we had our drill program in 2019. And with every hole we drilled, we continued to get better results and left um, it open in all directions, north, east, south, west, and at depth. Uh, Marana, just to the north, we're very excited about drilling this. Uh, so the geophysics and geochem that we've done, it has led us to believe that there is a sill running right up to this part of JLA. Uh, drilling Marana would help uh, solidify that theory, as well as, as you can see, as you can see, all these dots are uh, boulders with niobium samples in them. Where some of the highlights are between two and six percent niobium, uh, there's one a little bit off this map that got up to sixteen percent niobium. 
Now, this boulder train dies off right on this mag. Uh, th this leads us to believe this is the postulated source for uh, the highest grade niobium that we're going to find on the property. It's never been drill tested. This is one of the targets that I would like to drill in the summer, as well as Mallard, because we got such good results from our last drill program. This slide is just one hole of, uh, that shows how open it is. Uh, the different colors represent different uh, grades of niobium, purple being the highest, uh, blue being the lowest. This is some board that uh, came from our drill program. Uh, the, where the arrows are pointing, these little dots are pyrochlores. This is where uh, the niobium and tantalum are held. Um, it, it can be microscopic. You can, it can also be seen by the naked eye. Seville also has a couple of kickers that come with it. Flores bar being the main one, we've got up to 30% floors bar in uh, our drill core. We analyzed some of the core that Commerce drilled in the past, as well as uh, some of the core that we drilled and are very excited for the upcoming drill program in the summer, which will be shared with Commerce resources. Okay, we just have a couple questions here. Uh, first one was just, uh, is this gonna be available on the website, John? Uh, it will be. Um, I'm still working uh, to put a few more slides into it, but yes, we'll make that available shortly. And then the other one was just a, a bit of a statement there from James. Niobium is an important element, but not a rare element. Uh, we did just kind of mention that at the start. Yes. So it, it was this was built out to uh, be rare earth elements and rare metals, uh, but it, it happens regularly. Niobium gets sort of pushed to the back burner, even though it is extremely important to work inside with rare earths. Uh, and so John Harris also had a question about rare earth pollutant and ESG. I'm not sure if Stefan or Chris Berry or even Chris Grove wanted to maybe address this one. I'll, uh, I'll say it here and then whatever one decides. So are there any new procedures for processing rare earth that are less pollutant and ESG compliant? Uh, I'm not sure if somebody had that. I'll take a stab at it. I mean, I think that you know, the last part of that question is critical because when, you, when you're asking what's ESG compliant, one of the challenges that this supply chain, the critical metal supply chain is struggling with right now is what exactly ESG compliant means. Who's making the rules? Um, how are you supposed to follow, you know, rules or be ESG compliant when we're not really sure what we're talking about here right now? You know, from my perspective, uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goals are a list of about 17, I think, different you know boxes you want to tick for for different projects uh, or for your project to become ESG compliant and sustainable. So um, that's one issue. I think we all have to sort of think about what exactly it means to be ESG compliant, right? Are we using less acid? Um, is there gender diversity on the board? I mean, I think it means a lot of different things um, in terms of the processing. And again, Chris or Stefan, you know, jump in here. But I, I would argue that um, some of the state-of-the-art solvent extraction or ion exchange processing that is very popular today and it's not necessarily scaled up has been around for a long time. Okay, um, I think one of the challenges that we're finding in the rare earth space is that because there's no sort of uniformity from one rare earth deposit to the next, uh, utilizing an off-the-shelf sort of state-of-the-art solvent extraction technology uh, doesn't or just doesn't really work yet at scale. Uh, one of the things I think that is going to change out of the next 10 years, but I think that the technology that's going to become ESG friendly and is going to really lower costs for given deposits 
is going to be tailored towards that deposit. Okay, so commerce may process its or one way, right? And it might be perfect for them and it might be ESG compliant, but MP materials or maybe some of the other up and coming rear earth juniors could have a completely different process that, again, is ESG compliant, whether or not it's through less acid consumption with solvent extraction, something like that. Um, but as we sit here today, I wouldn't necessarily say there's a specific technology that's a front runner to get to ESG compliance. So it's it's a not a stalemate in the industry, but it's something that I think the industry is working through. Um, thanks, Chris. Um, I think there are a couple of things here and that question speaks to. And uh, one uh, in no particular order is, as we always say, necessity is the mother of invention. And in terms of that, um, the great majority of rare earth element projects brought to market um, uh, have fundamentals are hosted by minerals that as yet no one really knows how to process uh, economically. Uh, the ashram deposit is the most standard style of deposit. In terms of rare earth element production and uh, what historically or what currently people still think is a uh, damaging to the environment, that's not necessarily the case. Yes, historically that was the case in China, which gave them a lower operating cost. But even in China, and the Chinese, to a certain extent, should be given full credit for this. Uh, over the last 10 years, at a minimum, the, the, the government uh, 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 of China has been very active in improving uh, extractive processes, closing down illegal mines, closing down significant polluters. Um, one of the telling uh, uh, signs for this is the difference in sourcing uh, within China itself. So a significant amount of rare earth element production historically was coming from the South China ionic clays. And these are basically heat leached with acid and they're horrible to the environment. But the Chinese government has basically disallowed that kind of production to happen. However, Right across what basically is not even a border is Myanmar, and they operate those kinds of facilities there. And who buys it? The Chinese do. So, you know, in terms of, terms of being a good global citizen, maybe we're not, the Chinese are not quite there yet. But in terms of Chinese deposits, uh, they have improved, arguably, they are working to continue to improve the extractive processes and the processing processes. And at the end of the day, you know, what, uh, there, there is nothing inherently damaging to the environment in rare earth element extraction and processing. At the end of the day, uh, from solvent extraction, your waste product is salt water. So, you know, where you dispose of or how you dispose of the salt water is the main issue. Certainly, uh, Commerce Resources is a company that was awarded the E3 Plus Award in 2015 by the Quebec Mining Association for excellence in basically ESG. And that is exactly what we will continue to do. But it's an important aspect of the Chinese production, which arguably has fundamentally changed, which has then led uh, to the Chinese also being a net importer. And that happened or was first reported by the Beijing uh, service we subscribe to, and which I received basically daily price reports from in October of 2018. So China is now importing from North Korea, Myanmar, Vietnam, Australia, the United States, and they are a net importer of rare earth elements. And the main reason is because the government has shut down a lot of the illegal and most egregious polluters in China. So um, it's not as big an issue as a lot of people think in terms of rare earth elements being polluters. Thank you, Chris. And Chris, uh, that was we heard from two Chris's there. That was a good thing. And I think we have a question there from John Harris. Uh, if you could unmute yourself, John, and ask your question. Uh, you're still muted there, John, but left-hand side at the bottom of the screen, you should be able to unmute. There you go. Um, I've had a lot of experience with rare earths in my past in the steel industry. 
We used it uh, predominantly in uh, making um, X70 pipe. pipe for the, uh, the pipelines. And one of the things that I've seen happen, and you talked about China, China's explosion is the explosion associated with the amount of steel they're making. They make half of the world steel now. They're making half of the global production of steel right now. When we used rare earth, it was used, we used it as the actual ore and we didn't break it down. And it was, and uh, my wife constantly complained about my clothes. Because <laughs> it stunk. Interesting, interesting. Okay, my two cents worth. Thanks, John. Uh, um, and, uh, now we'll, uh, we'll move on to a company that uh, is important uh, uh, as it is still private. It's uh, one of the companies that Zim2 Capital Corp is moving from the private stage to the public stage. Um, and uh, um, within that, there certainly is opportunity. Uh, we're currently uh, in this company, uh, Zim2 is currently raising money at seven and a half cents with a 15 cent warrant. Um, and uh, um, uh, here today is uh, Steve Minot, and uh, I think you're around as well, uh, 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 Neil. Yeah. Neil, and my favorite Scotch, because his name is Neil McCallum. Um, and uh, uh, so that's got to be a good sign. He's got to be sort of an honest guy. Anyways, go ahead, Steve. Great. Thank you, Dave. Good morning, everyone. Steve Minot, Director of uh, Eagle Bay Resources. Thank you to Stefan and uh, Chris Berry and uh, Zim2 as well. Great to be a part of this event today. Uh, as Dave just touched on, Eagle Bay Resources is a privately held early stage mineral exploration company focused on exploring and developing the cap property, uh, which is believed to be prospective for the rare earth elements and niobium. Uh, again, as was touched on, um, Zim2 Capital this is a team here, but Zim2 Capital is supporting Eagle Bay Resources as we make uh, strides go public. I like to uh, continue to mention that is it's one thing to take company public by yourself, but to have Zim2 Capital behind Eagle Bay, while it goes from a private company to public company and given Zim2 Capital success rate at uh, taking companies public, it is a very exciting opportunity. Um, moving on to the rare earth elements as we were discussing and uh, the demand that is out there, I mean, we were talking there in regards to to China and their resources, but um, if those of you who have been following Rare Earth, I'm sure you were aware of uh, what happened in Greenland. And, uh, you know, it, it just shows um, the interest and the dem demand now that is out there. And now they are going to be looking for different resources. And one of the largest uh, resources that is around is uh, Canada. So um, Eagle Bay, again, very excited to be in British Columbia, one of the uh, larger resources. And um, moving on to the properties uh, in BC. I brought uh, senior geologist uh, Neil McCallum, who has spent a uh, numerous amount of time up on this property, who can give you an in-depth overview of the property and uh, what he, we have discussed on the plans moving forward. Yeah, okay. Um, one of the biggest things to note about this project is uh, the amount of strike length it has in the belt um, compared to the other companies in this region. Um, looking at the Wichita carbonatite deposit, it was really only developed, I think, in 2000 and 
2010, 2011, and has taken off from there. So it's a relatively recent uh, advanced project where they basically went from a few rock samples and then drilled it off, built a tonnage, and now they're advancing that project. So this region is really, really new, and it really needs a lot more work in it to realize the potential. Um, there's been a few other discoveries along the belt. Um, as you can see on this map, there's niobium and rare earths uh, that have been found in rock sample and drilling on Eagle Bay's property. And one thing that's not noted on this map is a mag target, and we're planning to do follow up on that as well. Um, and it looks quite similar to that Wichita carbonatite deposit that, that's noted as well. So we'd like to this summer do rock sampling, prospecting, um, making new discoveries in this belt. There's a large, I think the eight kilometer long trend of airborne radiometrics and mag really hasn't seen enough work. And then we can generate drill targets for the next round of exploration. So I'm really excited to see what we come up with. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Neil. Uh, really appreciate that. And moving on here, as once again, um, Dave Hodge did touch on, just like to remind everyone that we have a, uh, a low seed financing open at the moment with Eagle Bay Resources. We'll be doing a financing uh, seven and a half cents with a 10 cent warrant for the first six months, followed by a 15 cent warrant to balance out the fiscal year. And uh, as Neil just touched on, we're going to be uh, using financing for further exploration, uh, rock sampling, soil sampling, and um, look to get a drill program uh, going throughout uh, the summer here. Um, if you have any further questions, please feel free to contact myself directly. Uh, more than happy to answer any questions that you have. And I'd just like to thank you everyone again for attending. Stephen Bogner, Chris Berry, uh, Colton, thank you very much. Dave Hodge, Sim too. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you all as uh, Eagle Bay continues to move forward here. Okay, we do have a couple of questions here. First one we can ask probably for you, Steve, because you touched on it earlier. What happened in Greenland? Oh, okay, thank you. Uh, Greenland, they did have, I know Chris Grove is uh, listening there too. Uh, there was um, a very attractive, they wanted to mine it for quite a while uh, for rare earth uh, deposits. And they had a vote and it came through that, that they weren't going to go through with it uh, once again. Um, they hoped they would. So as, as I was touching on with the Greenland, with that happening, it just shows the demand of uh, the rare earth elements and what they wanted to, to do there. Um, and now they're going to be looking for other resources, which is great for companies such as, you know, myself, Eagle Bay, uh, Commerce, Seville. And um, if, if you're interested, I do have a link uh, for the full uh, news article. But that was the gist of what happened uh, in Greenland there recently. Uh, Chris, if you have anything else to add to that, um, please do. Um, well, just we do have one more question here, uh, and, and I'll just go ahead and ask this to Neil. Um, Neil, this summer, <clears throat> when you have when you start your exploration drilling, will Eagle Bay test the entire property or just the area where the preliminary data is, as noted, the Rocky Mountain Belt? Yeah, um, when you look at that map, the, the, we have a pretty good idea right now where to follow up our, our drilling campaign. Um, we might do some across the property. We can do. Uh, little bit of work up and down the belt to make new discoveries, but the drilling is likely to occur um, where we already have information. Perfect. Uh, and there's one other question here from John Rice, uh, and I'll open it up for Steve or Dave even. Can you touch on what basis was used to establish the seven and a half share price? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, you better let me deal with that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. The, uh, you know, at the beginning of when you're starting these companies, uh, uh, you have to pick a number somewhere and you don't want to pick it too high and you don't want to pick it too low. 
because we are going to need money to advance this uh, project. Um, and the negative aspect is the lower price you do, the, you create more dilution. So um, it really, that seven and a half cent price came from um, a, a bit of a polling of the Zim2 crew. Uh, but in reality, it, uh, it was picked uh, by my white hair. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's just as simple as that. Uh, um, but it should create a share structure that has the money to drill, uh, to take advantage of the opportunity uh, without uh, a tremendous dilution. Um, but uh, uh, certainly it's an opportunity at seven and a half cents. It's a good opportunity for anybody. Here, I do have another question in. Um, maybe Neil, this one would be probably more for you. Uh, is Eagle's geology formation the same as that of defense metals? How is infrastructure? Is your property close to roads and power? Um, that's a great question. In terms of the geology, um, we're looking at uh, carbonatite style um, intrusions and associated uh, alkaline rocks. So in that respect, they're similar. Um, we haven't done the mineralogy to, to know whether we're looking at the same minerals and and, and such, but uh, it's a fairly early stage in that respect, but we're pretty confident that it's gonna be, um, you know, carbonatites have all sorts of wild and wonderful minerals with them. So uh, infrastructure, right now you can drive to the project on forestry roads. There's uh, a, a number of forestry blocks in the area. So that's fairly straightforward to get to the project and, and advance it. So that's got its positives. Great. All right, doesn't look like we have any other questions. So thanks, Steve and Neil. Uh, and next up would be Commerce Resources. Uh, so Chris, you can uh, take away if you like. Thank you very much, Colton. Uh, can everyone uh, see this uh, screen? It's good. Great, it's a pleasure to speak to you all today. Thank you, Dave, Colton, and the whole Zim2 team for organizing this uh, great presentation, uh, Stefan and Chris Berry. You brought up some, you had some great uh, information there and you brought up some great points. Um, and uh, I am certainly happy to present a short presentation on the ashram rare earth element and fluorospar deposit on which we've been working for 12 years now. Uh, I'm glad that last question was about mineralogy uh, to Dr. Neil, uh, because I wanted to say that all roads lead to monazite. Monazite is the industry preferred mineral to extract rare earth elements from due to its high neodymium and praseodymium, let's call it NDPR from now on, content compared to bastnasite and xenotime hosted deposits. This is very important. Ultimately, uh, when Scott Moe and his government announced spending 31 to $35 million on the construction of the first rare earth element processor in Canada at the Saskatchewan Research Council in Saskatoon, um, I thought that was an interesting idea. I thought it was more interesting when the Export Minister of Trade and Development contacted me and introduced me to the Deputy Minister, who then introduced me to the people at SRC. Ultimately, I was informed that SRC are setting up that processing facility to process monazite hosted material. 
Um, in addition, just over a year ago, uh, you may have been aware that uh, Mark Chalmers and the uh, management of Energy Fuels had a webinar where they announced that they were raising the rare earth element flag. Our very skilled and uh, valued uh, project manager, Darren Smith, called me up and he said, you should call those guys at Energy Fuels. So within 48 hours, I was on the phone with Mark Chalmers and two things became very clear from that first phone call. One, Mark had been given good uh, advice to retrofit their white mesa mill in Utah to become a rare earth element processor. And as Mark said to me, well, you know, we got some good information from a couple of guys down here in the United States. You might know their names, Andrew Wheeler, Wilbur Ross, and Dick Cheney. And I was like, yep, I know those guys. Absolutely. It's good advice. Secondly, what became clear was that on April 17th, 2020, when we had this phone call, uh, Mark didn't really have a line on feed. And so uh, he asked or I offered, I can't remember which, but they requested a sample from us. So they are certainly one of the companies we're happy to uh, supply feedstock to. More recently, in November of 2020, they successfully retrofitted their facility to process monazite hosted feed, which they are currently getting from Chemours uh, out of Georgia and Florida. And these are monazite uh, dominant uh, sands or monazite waste uh, from Chemours production of fluorospar, uh, uh, fertilizer, sorry. In terms of the current deal between Chemours and uh, energy fuels, Chemours is supplying them with 2,500 tons of monazite dominant feedstock per annum. Uh, the current business plan uh, for Commerce Resources is to produce somewhere around 35,000 tons of similar material to what Chemours is supplying energy fuels. So this is a, a you know, this is an interesting opportunity for Commerce Resources and uh, we'll continue to keep you updated on this. And yes, the ashram is uh, uh, a high grade monazite dominated deposit. In terms of uh, mineralogy and geological fundamentals, I'll just be very quick here. Commerce Resources was created around a set of carbonatites here in British Columbia, uh, the Blue River Project, where we have over 30 mineralized carbonatites. And uh, in terms of rare earth elements, uh, we started looking for a world-class rare earth element project in 2005 when China imposed a, uh, the global export duty on rare earth elements. And what we quickly learned, Dave Hodge and myself, uh, with our uh, amount of due diligence, was that the industry of rare earth elements was completely dominated by uh, commercial extraction from four minerals, with monazite being the dominant one of those four. As well, over 80% of all rare earth elements are from carbonatite-hosted sources. As Dr. Neal said, carbonatites can have different uh, uh, minerals. Uh, Defense Metals is a bastnasite-dominant project. Mountain Pass in California is a bastnasite-dominant project. Um, but uh, monazite is arguably the preferred mineral because it has a greater percentage of the magnet feed. Uh, the ashram is a carbonatite and it is dominated by monazite. This is just a list of global producers and you can see carbonatite, 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 carbonatite. The world's largest project is Bayanobo and the next slide goes into a direct comparison between Commerce Resources ashram project and Bayanobo. Bayanobo is the world's largest rare earth element producer. They would produce about 45% of the entire world supply. They always have and probably will for a long time because these carbonatites are extremely large deposits going down to not the center of the earth, which is crazy, but uh, certainly down a very significant difference. Um, in terms of Mike's presentation on niobium, uh, it should also be noted that 
approximately 98 to 99 percent of all of the world's niobium also comes from carbonatite hosted sources. Uh, but back to rare earth elements. So Bionovo, the world's largest uh, rare earth element producer, uh, the Ashram, a very large deposit, and also the world's second largest defined fluorospar resource, uh, with Bionovo being the world's largest. Uh, skipping down, uh, Bionovo is a carbonatite, as is the Ashram. We are both monazite dominant with a basnazite secondary uh, mineralogy. But then down at the bottom, you can see that we actually have a slightly higher distribution of that all-important NDPR. Now, this brings me to another uh, factor, which is all roads lead to, okay, who put that in the presentation? The heads will roll. All roads lead to the ashram, rare earth element fluorospar deposit, which is the largest monazite dominant defined resource in North America. Uh, full disclosure, a larger deposit, uh, a carbonatite uh, with uh, monazite dominant material does exist in Angola. Uh, run by Pensana. It is about 313 million tons at a slightly lower grade, 1.43% rare earth elements. We are 249 million tons collectively measured, indicated, inferred at approximately 1.9%. So we're slightly higher grade and slightly smaller. But the main fact, unless you love Angola, I would rather be in Quebec. Uh, this is a picture of the original outcrop discovered by Ashley and Ramses following the direction of this bearded gentleman here, Mr. Darren Smith. And uh, this is a picture that was taken in 2015 at the Ashram uh, original outcrop. And you can see this gentleman here sporting a very nice toque or knit cap. That is Mr. Chris Berry. He has been to site. Uh, I will just mention this is Denny Williams here, who is the fund manager from Investissement Quebec, who then put a million dollars into commerce in February of 2017. And uh, 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 much to the, uh, um, uh, let me say that uh, Dave Hodge wasn't happy when uh, the government of Quebec was a commerce's largest shareholder for a couple of years. I'm happy to report that Zim2 is back again as commerce resources largest shareholder. And we are very, very fortunate to have the backing of Zim2. Uh, at any rate, uh, that is yours truly here at the outcrop. And uh, this was discovered on the last day of the field season in 2009. We drilled it in 2010 and the first discovery hole was amazing. I'm not quite sure why Chris Berry is so mad at me here. We're standing in front of the Ashram bolt sample pit. I think I asked him to, to dig up a couple of tons of Ashram material and carry it back in his roomy backpack. I don't know. He, he was... I, I don't know if he's ever forgiven me. Anyways, there we go. That picture, that's my bad side, Chris. You know, I take pictures better from the other side. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, to be very compliant with the regulators, the Ashram resource is 1.6 million tons in the measured category, 27.7 million tons in the indicated category, and 219.8 million tons in the inferred category. This is based on only about 15,000 meters of drilling. We've added approximately another 10,000 meters of drilling to this, and we look forward to releasing that new resource in the pre-feasibility study. Uh, this is just a, a showing you how great our NDPR and magnet feed percentage is, a percentage better than Linus, uh, uh, a couple of percentage points better than Bionobo, and about 9% better than Mountain Pass down here. I'm going to wrap this up because uh, Dave said I should be giving a short presentation, but uh, we have optimized so much uh, for the project since the release of what were excellent economics in 2012. Uh, we have added close to 10,000 meters of drilling. We added the fluorospar byproduct, which was not included in those spectacular economics. Yes, Jerry Maguire, show me the money. Ultimately, 
in terms of the values of the rare earth elements we used to calculate those great economics in 2012, these are the four most important. Praseodymium at 59 a kilo, uh, neodymium at 60 a kilo, uh, uh, terbium at 764, and dysprosium at 624. You can see the prices now all have appreciated significantly, excepting for that laggard dysprosium. But dysprosium is, and I think Chris brought this up in terms of uh, magnet tech, magnet R&D, dysprosium is just less important on a percentage basis to magnet manufacturer than it was in 2010. But these other three are more important because the percentage difference was picked up by these three that was lost by dysprosium. Uh, two of the things that we're very, very proud of is that Commerce has produced two commercially marketable samples, one of our rare element concentrate and also one of our upgraded acid-grade fluorospar sample. Um, one of the final things I'd like to touch on is what everybody keeps on asking me about, which is the road. First off, Commerce could be in production with just an ice road, and we were asked in 2018 to send around a, a questionnaire which had two simple questions uh, from the government of Quebec. If the government of Quebec financed a road in this area, would you use the road, yes or no? And if you used it, would you uh, pay for a percentage of the maintenance fee? Eight companies, including Commerce, signed this yes. And then just a month ago, Midland Exploration and Soquem announced spending $5 million in the same area where this road is uh, supposed to go. And uh, Midland's Natchi Kapow project here is about 40 kilometers southwest from the ashram, which would be around here. And so I am hopeful that the government of Quebec uh, sees their way to finally financing this road. So at the end of the day, uh, the ashram is the most standard type of deposit that is in commercial production. We have a huge resource. We're in a great jurisdiction. We have produced high-grade mineral concentrates. We have produced commercially marketable samples of both of our commodities. Uh, we had positive economics in 2012, and we're working on the pre-fees, where we will finally include the uh, uh, block by fluorospar byproduct. Excuse me. Thank you very much for the opportunity today. I hope I didn't go on too, too long. Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, and just uh, while everybody is thinking about whatever questions they might have for any of our speakers, uh, let me introduce uh, the newest member of the Zintu, or the newest member, I guess, of the Commerce team. Uh, and uh, it's the young man sitting next to me, Boris. Can you say something? Yes. Hello, everyone. Um, very excited to be here and to, uh, to finally meet the great Chris Berry I've heard so much about. Um, it's been a, a very exciting three weeks so far, and I look forward to, uh, to getting to know more about the industry and commerce resources. So thank you. Anybody have any questions? Um... Yeah, we're getting one in here from Neil. Uh, how is the price of floor spar doing, Chris? Uh, the price of fluorospar has gone crazy. Uh, interestingly, uh, fluorospar, uh, in terms of global production, uh, has had the same thing occur to it. Uh, as have rare earth elements. Uh, China was the world's largest net uh, uh, exporter of fluorospar up until about three or four years ago, when it also became a net importer. Again, what I said earlier about uh, Beijing's policies uh, to reducing environmental degradation, that also has apparently affected fluorospar production in that country, which arguably well, was horribly extracted under old uh, historical Chinese methods. So um, uh, China has become a net importer of both rare earth elements and fluorospar. This has been more significant in terms of price for uh, fluorospar. 
Um, we've been contacted by a half dozen global majors with interest in our fluorospar byproduct. Uh, that would include the world's largest glass company, Asahi Glass out of Japan with a market cap in the trillions of yen. Uh, they don't use fluorospar to make glass, but they have a huge fluorochemical uh, business. One of the other companies that reached out to us was Lincoln Electric in, based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They're the world's largest welding supplies manufacturer. And it was they who informed us that Metspar, which we basically will produce for free, uh, is actually, and this is like July, August of last year, was actually valued higher than Acid Spar, which is highly unusual because you actually have to do some upgrading to get to Acid Spar, which is what we did. But we produce Metspar for basically free. So I would suggest Metspar and Acid Grade Spar prices are somewhere both around $500 per ton. So that uh, difference in global production uh, really goosed the prices for Fluorospar on a percentage level much greater than rare earth element prices have, have seen an in increase so far as yet. And uh, to follow up on that, will Ashram produce acid-grade fluorospar or just Metspar? Well, we produce Metspar basically for free in the magnetic separation of the most standard flow sheet going in the industry. Um, so the question would be, why would we do any further upgrading to produce uh, acid-spar unless there's an economic benefit to do so? Um, what I can't say is what let's say a potential future partner might want us to produce. We can certainly produce acid spar. We demonstrated that. But, you know, to sell into the Met spar market, uh, a product, a byproduct that comes out for free. And, you know, we could produce uh, uh, greater than 70,000 tons of Met spar per annum. And at $500 US per ton, that's an additional $35 million of revenue, basically for free. And in terms of, uh, 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 of what uh, John Harris was saying about steel production, uh, Metspar is essential for steel production, as it is for aluminum production. So, um, you know, that decision will be made at some point in time. Uh, we don't have to make it yet. Uh, but if we... If we see additional economic benefit to produce acid spar, then we might do that. Chris, that wasn't me that muted you. <laughs> I, I mean, I wanted to, I have to admit. But it wasn't me. <laughs> I'll take blame. Uh, it doesn't look like we have any other questions. If you do have any questions, feel free to again put it in the chat or you can unmute yourself and just ask away. This is Louisa Moreno. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hi, Louisa. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, and hi, Chris Berry. It's been a while. Hi. How are you? I'm good. It's been a long time. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. I actually have a question for you, Chris B. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with most of the projects as you know, but we haven't heard much what's going on in West, uh, just to give, I guess, the audience sense. Um, do you have an idea um, on the delays to restart a mountain processing plant? Um, you know, um, do, you, do you have any updates on that? Uh, with respect to mountain pass and what's going on? Um, yeah. I, you know, look, I, I give the new management team a lot of credit because I feel like you know, there were conferences that you and I attended and Chris Grove, I know you were there and previous management from Molly Corp was talking about in relatively short order, you know, producing 30, 40, upwards of 50,000 tons of, of mixed rare earth concentrate, which of course did not happen. Um, so look, I give, I give the existing management team um, credit for getting to that point. I think they're roughly at a, I think they're on a run rate of 30 to 40,000 tons of, of unseparated feed material, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware. Um, I haven't heard anything lately in the last sort of few weeks about, you know, delays moving towards um, phase two. I mean, I think one of the beauties of what, what that group has done is 
by utilizing that SPAC structure that they did to go public, I mean, they're arguably almost over-equitized. Um, I think they raised about half a million dollars, right? Half a billion, excuse me, good Lord. And um, phase two, I think that plant, the CapEx is around $170 million. And of course, I think they also just did a large convertible bond raise. So, you know, what are what are any specific delays? I'm not uh, aware of any at this point, Louisa, to be honest with you. I think we're all, the entire industry is sort of watching and waiting to see if, if MP can get it right this time, um, because they obviously have not in the past. One of the things that, you know, I think about a lot in the rare earth space is, is latent separation capacity in China, right? And that's always sort of been the boogeyman here. And I think that if there's a risk for MP going forward, it's exactly that. Um, but, you know, in terms of any specific delays for bringing on phase two, I haven't, I haven't come across any yet. I mean, it's certainly not, I mean, like I said, the funding risk has been taken off the table. I think it's just more technology focused. Um, Chris Grove, I don't know if you have any insights there. Um, I would agree with everything you said, Chris, and uh, I'm very impressed by the new management team. Um, I met the COO, Michael Rosenthal, at the last International Rare Earth Element Conference in Kuala Lumpur in November of 2019. Um, those guys know what they're doing. Um, it's a completely different situation in terms of management. And um, I would encourage everyone to forget the what, what uh, occurred before that uh, caused the bankruptcy of Molly Corp. Um, but uh, they're backed by a, a very good deposit, carbonatite, uh, mountain pass, uh, bastinacite dominant. Um, it's in production. You know, they're one of the biggest uh, suppliers to the Chinese market right now. But the goal of the current management is to have uh, a processing on site. And uh, in my book, they're doing all of the right things to accomplish that. And as you said, that uh, that SPAC investment, you know, arguably, they've got more money than uh, they can arguably deploy at this point in time, you know, uh, considering what it will cost them to have uh, an SX facility processing their material on site. So uh, I'm very, very impressed by them. And I think ultimately, you know, their current uh, uh, highest market cap uh, in North America for a rare earth element company does make sense. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Um, it's, it's just amazing to see the market cap, uh, I believe, at $5 billion, uh, when they only mining uh, and selling the, the mineral concentrate. That obviously opens an, uh, an immense opportunity for rare earth companies in North America like yourselves, Chris, once you are able to um, start getting into the momentum of producing even a concentrate. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. And Chris, just to follow up, there's another question here from uh, this one? from from the Netherton. So, uh, Chris, the road you mentioned uh, is key to mine development, correct? Well, no. I mean, as I mentioned right at the beginning, uh, we could be operational without an all-weather road. Uh, so we could be on an ice road. Uh, there's debate about how many months of the year an ice road would be operational due to global warming, which is a factor. But um, you know, I would suggest a minimum of two months of the year, uh, we could use an ice road. So, you know, what the production scenario is for the first, you know, half dozen years of production, uh, how much material can we actually get out in two months or three months on an ice road? Those are calculations that could be made. Um, but an all-weather road is not necessarily what's holding back the project. Uh, having an all-weather road would be great. Um, so, uh, you know, with the the road, some kind of transport from site to tidewater is needed, but that could be satisfied by an ice road. Okay, now there are two technical questions, so I'm not sure who uh, is able to answer these ones, but I'll throw them out there. Uh, the first one, what are the major rare earth elements for supercapacitors? And this comes from Vernon. Uh, anybody that, Chris, either of the Chris's, Stefan? That's, that's a little bit above my pay grade. I'm not sure. I would say, you know, it's an interesting question because I'd be willing to bet that you know, the, the rare earth elements that are utilized in supercapacitors today 
are probably not going to be the rare earth elements that are used in supercapacitors super in five to 10 years. Um, that, that sort of composition of different rare earth elements, and this goes beyond supercapacitors. I mean, I think you could talk about magnets as well. Um, look, it is starting to change because there are price, the market is somewhat price sensitive. And so um, I think what we want to avoid in the rare earth space right now going forward, regardless of the end market, magnets or supercapacitors, you want to avoid the you know, the parabola, right? Like the boom and the bust because it misallocates capital and I think it confuses the market. I mean, I do think that with rare earth pricing where it is today, it's it's entirely justified. Um, again, a lot of that has to do with what Chris, you had mentioned in your your presentation around China sort of becoming a net importer of, of rare earth elements. And of course, as the largest end user in the world, that makes total sense that you'd start to see pricing pressure. Um, so, you know, a little bit of a stream of consciousness here. I'm not exactly sure how the supercapacitor uh, or what the supercapacitor rare earth element relationship is. Um, Chris, I don't know if you have any specifics there, but it, it's going to probably evolve and change. Well, um, uh, two things. Uh, first off, uh, I loved uh, the, photo the photograph you had as your opening slide, Chris Berry, with American Psycho, uh, with the Motorola Dynatac. And uh, the fundamental difference between that phone and then the MicroTac or the StarTac, which it took Motorola six years to design, was essentially the material used for the capacitors, which went from being aluminum and ceramic capacitors to tantalum capacitors. And that has been the backbone of the miniaturization of the electronics world since 1988, 89. And that uh, those tantalum capacitors have been reduced in size for ever since that time. But basically tantalum is the most important thing for capacitors. Um, if we're talking actually about semiconductors or supercapacitors or microchips, the amount of rare earth elements used in them is a very small amount. Uh, it's used in a process that I don't totally understand called doping. And um, I don't really think, uh, another side to the same question was, uh, what will the semiconductor supply gap mean for rare earth element prices? And the answer, as far as I can understand it, is not much at all. Um, in terms of R&D, I would say, uh, just to touch on something Chris said, uh, the planet Earth went through about a six-year R&D drive to substitute out rare earth elements in uh, permanent magnets, and that essentially was a total bust. Uh, one of the guys, one of the names of uh, in the industry that everyone should know, Gareth Hatch, who's a magnet guy who works with Innovation Metals Corporation right now, he informed me that in September of 2016, there was this international magnet manufacturing conference, and they basically concluded, listen, we tried, it didn't work, and the prices for rare earth elements have come down to the point where everybody's comfortable just with uh, essentially the same design or the same recipe, which wasn't really the same. They had reduced the percentage amount of dysprosium, but the rare earth element permanent magnet is still dominated by rare earth elements. Um, so I'm, there may be, I mean, don't get me wrong, uh, optimization occurs all the time, every different way, but I think the, the major R&D work was spent already on uh, permanent magnets. That's my humble opinion, Chris Berry. Okay, great. Now, there's one more question that came in that's pretty technical, so I'll throw it out there. NDPR oxide becomes more and more available. Any proven processes converting the oxides to alloys slash magnets? Well, uh, there's an intermediate process there, and uh, that's an interesting question, and uh, thank you whomever asked it. Um, and that leads me to a story I'm going to make, try to make as short as possible. Ian Higgins is the CEO of Less Common Metals. Less Common Metals received a grant from the U European Union Horizon 2020 Fund of 17 million euros in the fall of 2018. Um, at that International Rare Earth Element Conference, uh, Ian Higgins ran out and grabbed my arm and said, could he get a sample of material from the ashram? Because essentially that 17 million euros, even while Britain was in the throes of Brexit and less common is in the UK, 
point um, that that capital came essentially with the caveat that he should be buying or sourcing non-Chinese feedstock to produce uh, rare earth element metal out of. Ultimately, Ian uh, was successful in that process, and I spoke to him October of last year. And so Less Common Metals is the uh, only significant commercial producer of rare earth element metal in the Western world. There are small facilities in Vietnam, Thailand, etc., but Less Common Metals is the real deal. So NDPR oxide goes essentially to NDPR metal, and then that kind of NDPR metal would go to somebody like uh, Urban Mining in Texas, and they were the recipient of $29 million from the US DOD. And arguably, under the last administration, that was the only capital, in my humble opinion, that made uh, that went to the, the right source, which was urban mining are doing the right thing in my book. This $29 million will allow them to build out their, their manufacturing facility, and they are looking to less common metals for uh, NDPR metal to produce magnets. I hope that answered the question. Well, folks, uh, it's about that time again. Uh, I certainly would like to thank all our guests for coming uh, and all our speakers for speaking. Uh, a special thanks to you, of course, Chris Berry, um, uh, coming all the way from, I understand it's not New York anymore. Now you're coming from. I'm, I'm in the swamp. I moved to Washington, D.C. about a year ago. So definitely uh, an interesting year to be here. Thanks. Anyway, folks, uh, uh, thanks for coming. I uh, hope to see you all on the next Zoom with Zim2Call. Um, and that's it.